You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Morning, church. So glad that you could join us for week one of our brand new teaching series, Fruit. We're going to be spending the next nine weeks exploring the fruit of the Spirit. I want to say a special welcome to those joining us online for the live stream. Uh, I'm wearing a puffy jacket. It is not a visual aid for the sermon today. It's just really cold in here. So good, good for you. You stayed home and you're probably warm and toasty. Uh, you made the right call today, uh, at least. And uh, if, if you've been with us, you know that we just wrapped up a teaching series called Hooked. And really, we've spent the month of January focusing on freedom from, right? How we can have freedom from sin, temptation, the peer pressure of the world. And really, this fruit teaching series is focused on freedom for, the kind of person that God wants you to become, Uh, the kind of person that God already says you are, but we still need to live into that new Identity, And I think one of the reasons that we often, even after having freedom from sin and temptation in our lives, sometimes go back to those old habits is we haven't replaced them with the new things that God wants to grow in our lives. Galatians chapter 2, verse 18, Paul writes this, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. He's using this metaphor of building and demolition. And uh, after over a year of this building renovation here, I know a little something about building renovations. And just to take this metaphor a little bit further, I want to show you a few pictures. The first picture is a before picture of the basement. Okay? So we've got a picture of the basement. Uh, The demo has started. Here's during. Here's during, like, the demolition phase. You can see quite substantial right? Ripping out all the old stuff. And this is what the basement looks like this week, right? We can celebrate. That's awesome, right? That's really cool. But in the basement, right, that's where all the kids go. That's where we have our kids' classroom. That specific room is actually our elementary room. And you don't want to know some of the stuff we found down there uh, when we did the demolition. I mean, we had a professional abatement company come out to remove asbestos tile that was in the flooring. Uh, We covered over exposed electrical conduit and geothermal pipes and just stuff that you don't want to have break and have like 160 degree water kind of spewing on children, right? You can imagine what some of that stuff is like. But think about this metaphor that Paul says. I mean, imagine we got to the second photo and we did all the demolition and tore everything out And then we said, well, you know, we don't actually have enough money to finish this thing. Let's put it all back. Let's reinstall the asbestos tile. Let's reinstall the exposed electrical and lighting down there. Does that make any sense at all? No. And that's the point that Paul is making. It makes even less sense for the things that God has given us freedom from in our lives to run back to those old habits, right? When we've tasted the sweetness of freedom in Christ, why do we run back to those old habits that die so hard? And I think the key is because we haven't grown fruit. We haven't replaced the old life with something 
new. And in the same way that the gospel is about a demolition project, removing that old stuff from our lives, if we've never actually lived into the new person in Christ, then inevitably that old life is going to creep back in. And so Paul, when he gets around to making that point in Galatians 5, he gives us the fruit of the Spirit. So we're going to spend the next nine weeks going through these. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. I would encourage you, we've got nine weeks, we're going to be going through this. Memorize Galatians 5, 22 and 23. If you have never done that, I would encourage you to memorize those verses. It makes a perfect prayer template for you to pray through the fruit of the Spirit in your life and ask God to grow those things in your heart. The reality is that that list is not a list of here's how you can better yourself. Try to be more loving, try to be more joyous, try to be more patient. We have this list, and it's called the fruit of the Spirit with a capital S, because these are characteristics that the Holy Spirit grows in us. As we connect with God, as we spend time with Jesus, as Jesus teaches us in John 15, when you abide in the vine, when you're connected to Christ, you read the email this week, fruit happens. Fruit just grows in your life, and God is the one who replaces that old self with the new self. And yet, there are things that we can do to open ourselves up to the growth that the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life. And that's really what we're going to be spending the next nine weeks exploring, is what are the specific ways that we can become people of love, people of joy, people of peace. And the first one is love. It's the first fruit. Now, word order in the Greek language often doesn't matter in ancient Greek, so uh, we can't take some of those things too seriously. And yet scholars pretty much agree that love is listed first for a reason. It's hard to overstate just how big of a deal this word love is in the New Testament. Here's just a few examples. The law of Christ is love. When Jesus was asked, what's the most important law? He gave two laws, and they both have to do with love. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. In another instance, Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he says that love is the test of discipleship. If you're truly a follower of Jesus, you will be someone who embodies love. You will love other people. In fact, in John 15, he says fruit is the test of discipleship. But you could make a strong case that the fruit that he's talking about in John 15 is love. He's talking about abiding in his commandments, and his commandments are to love. So we can't truly be followers of Jesus without living a life of love. You could say it's impossible to be a Christian, an unloving Christian. In another instance, the Apostle John in 1 John 4, 8, he makes the point that we cannot know God without love. That if you don't have love in you, you don't know God because he makes this bold statement because God is love. God is the source of love. He's the one who defines love. And so if you are living a life and you don't have Christ's kind of love in you, then John makes the case then you don't actually know God. 
Even if you do a lot of religious activities, you don't actually know who Jesus is. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, it's the love chapter. You might have heard it read at weddings, but in the first three verses, he makes the point ministry without love is meaningless. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter how many sermons I preach if I don't love my wife. It doesn't matter how many people you, you convert to Christianity if you're not a person of love. Ministry without love is meaningless. And that's just a small sampling of what the New Testament teaches us about love. But of course, there are different words for love in the Greek, and there, we all know there are different kinds of love. You might say to your mom, I love you, mom. You might also say to your friends when you're eating pizza, I love this pizza. Those are different things, right? They're different things. We know, we, we know that, obviously. And in the Greek, there are at least a few different words for love. One is philia, which is where we get Philadelphia from. And uh, it's brotherly love. It's kind of a friendship kind of love. It's when you, know, you just like someone. You just get along. I mean, you remember that, right? When you, when you found someone, you're like, we should be friends. We should be buddies. Because there's, there's an instant connection there. There's the other Greek word, eros which is where we get our word erotic from, and it's a romantic kind of love. And similarly, it's when you have a feeling towards someone, not necessarily that you would get along, but you're, you're physically attracted to that person. And, uh, and yet the word that is consistently used for the kind of love that Christians are called to exemplify is neither of those words. The Greek word is agape. Everyone say Agape. I would say if you're going to know one Greek word, this is probably one of the most important ones. Agape. Here's my definition for agape love. It's doing good without expecting repayment. Notice I said doing good. It's not even necessarily a feeling that you have towards someone, which separates agape love from the other kinds of love. Because if you're a friend with someone, you're a friend with them because you you feel good about that person. If you're in in love with someone, you desire them. You're attracted to them. Agape is a kind of love you can do even to your worst enemies. Someone that you have a very difficult time being in the same room with. You can still agape them. You can do good to them. You can pray for them. You can be generous. You can give without expecting to get You can serve without expecting to be served. Agape love is this caring for the person without caring what they do for you in return. It is selfless, it is sacrificial, and it is unseen and unparalleled in this world. It's a supernatural kind of love. I want to make the case today that agape love only exists from God and from God's people who have experienced it. I don't think that you can see another example of agape love, at least in the truest form, unless it comes from God. And it's this doing. It's, it's not necessarily even this feeling like I mentioned. In fact, the Greek word agape, which is the noun, it shows up a lot of times, 116 times in the New Testament. But agapao, which is the verb form, shows up even more. 143 times, which means more so it's how are you loving, not do you have it? Do you have love, but are you giving it? Are you showing it? Are you doing it? Love is a verb. 
And our main teaching text today, Jesus gives a one-sentence summary of this kind of love. So we're going to be in first, or we're going to be in uh, Luke chapter six today. If you have your Bible, and this is a, a well-known verse, we're just going to look at the very first verse in verse thirty-one. This is the Sermon on the Plain, which parallels much of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gives his one-sentence summary. This is Jesus' definition of love. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. You've heard this before. Matthew's version is maybe a, a little more memorable. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is called popularly the golden rule. Right. This is the when people talk about the golden rule. This is what they're talking about, and it's hard to argue. Right. Like that's wouldn't, wouldn't you like it if everyone lived like that? If everyone just treated other people like they wanted to be treated, and it's not even necessarily only a Christian idea. It's found in much of ancient wisdom. Buddha said something very similar. It's it's found even outside of uh, Christian tradition, but mostly other pre-Christian formulations of this are more like the silver rule, not the golden rule. They say something like, do not do to others what you would not want done to you. And so Jesus, his take on it goes one step further, and it's not this passive, don't treat people poorly, but actively do good. Actively, like love is an action, it's a positive action for people. But even with this simple rule, which it is quite simple, is it not? It's very simple. It's actually very difficult to live our lives like this. And no sooner do we have this teaching from Jesus or, or another teaching from him is love your neighbor as yourself that we kind of start to find loopholes. One of the classic loopholes that we try and find around this kind of agape love is seen in Luke chapter 10, verse 29. When a scribe is challenging Jesus about the, the most important laws and, and Jesus asks him, well, what do you think they are? And it's love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, 100%, you passed the quiz. And then he asked this question, wishing to justify himself, and who is my neighbor? Have you ever asked that question before? Maybe not in those words, but we'd say, okay, of course I'm supposed to love others. I'm supposed to do good without expecting in return. But who fits that category? I mean, who am I, who am I actually required to love? And what we see here is that common Jewish teaching, that rabbis were actually teaching this. Yes, and that's actually a quote from Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. That Jesus didn't create that. He's actually quoting from the Old Covenant. So this is God's idea of love all along, Old and New Covenant. And so good religious Jews, they would know Leviticus 19, right? They would know you're supposed to do that. But they would teach is love only your neighbor, And they would kind of find a loophole around it by, well, that person isn't really your neighbor because they're a Samaritan. That person isn't really your neighbor because they're unclean. So, you know, you're you're exempt from loving that kind of person. Or we might say that person isn't really your neighbor because they voted for a different presidential candidate than you. Oh, that person isn't really your neighbor because, you know, they have different views on masks or vaccines. Oh, that person isn't really your neighbor because fill in the blank. Christians do this today. They find loopholes and ways to misinterpret this universal principle of love, which is crystal clear, old and new covenant. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
And the other question that we tend to ask to try and get around this really, this really uh, huge calling for love is not necessarily a Bible verse to quote, but it's a marketing tactic. It's the question that every good advertising agency knows. It's the question, what's in it for me? You heard that question before? I mean, that's what, if you see a commercial on TV, you hear it on the radio, you see it on social media, every marketing firm, this is what they live and die by this question. Because you can't get someone to take an action, which is to buy a product, subscribe to a service, you know, whatever. You can't get someone to do something unless you answer this question. Show them what's in it for them. How do they benefit from it? And this kind of idea has actually crept into the way that we love. Sure, I'll, I'll help you move. Sure, I'll buy you coffee. But what's in it for me? And that's actually a twisted way to not really even love the person. It's a twisted way to love who? Yourself. That's not love. That's capitalism, actually, right? It's just this mutual, you know, doing it for the good of the enterprise or the good of yourself, Right? And so the opposite of love, I want to make the case today, it's not hatred. Hatred certainly is not what God wants for you either. But we, t- we tend to think if love is a good feeling and hatred is a bad feeling towards someone, as long as you don't hate them, you're fine. You're in the clear. That's kind of the traditional Jewish perspective that Jesus was speaking against. I want to make the case the opposite of love is selfishness. If love is really defined by how you give and serve and love others before yourself, how you put the needs and the interests of others before your own, the opposite of that is when you're putting your own needs first, when you're selfish, when the person that you love the most is actually you. And we've taken that love your neighbor as yourself and we've kind of crossed the lines through the neighbor part of that verse. So while I believe that we cannot grow this kind of agape love, it comes from above, it comes from God, we need God to grow this in us, here's something that we can do that can help us, is we can repent selfishness. You can repent of selfishness. You can turn to God and you can say, God, I'm sorry that I've made my life all about me. And you might remember the works of the flesh. We talked about this two weeks ago when we looked at the flesh, right? From Galatians chapter five. The the anti-fruit of the spirit is a list of 15 works of the flesh and every single one of the works of the flesh comes from putting me first. And when we turn inwards to, to ourselves, we actually turn against one another. And that's where we're fighting. And that's where the number of enemies that you have increases. How have you made your life all about yourself? Are you someone who expects to be served, but you don't expect to serve other people? Are you a person, even in simple ways, like conversation, you always have to make yourself look good. You always have to have the last word. Are you someone who expects other people to be generous to you, but you have a tight fist clenched around your possessions and your money? And if there are ways in your heart to just be honest, God knows these things are in our hearts anyways, to bring those things to God and say, sorry, I repent of these selfish attitudes in my life. Help me do unto others as I would have them do to me. 
Jesus actually addresses this in the very next verse, in Luke chapter 6, verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, this is where that, that idea of doing good, Jesus equates them love and doing good to one another. He says, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. And so I want to pick up on this language that Jesus uses. He's using financial language. Did you catch that? Right? He's using like lending. So here I have 10 US dollar bills. I went, you know, pulled out all the stops for the sermon, visual aid today. $10, okay? These are real. This one's, I think it's real. Okay. What Jesus is basically saying is he's saying this, and he's, he, he's not saying that there's anything wrong with, you know, someone paying you back, right? You know, giving someone a loan, they pay you back, whatever. But here, here's his point. His point is this is how we tend to treat people, and this is how we tend to use our love. Oh, I'm going to give this person a ride home. All right. You cash out me later? Good. I'm going to buy this person a coffee. I'm sure they're going to buy me a coffee back. And, it, and, and you only go so far before people do return the favor, and you're like, okay, okay, I'm back up to nine. Oh, I'm back up to ten. Good. All right. I'm going to help this person move. That's like $3 of love, okay? <laughs> Maybe four. That's a lot. And you're counting the days until that person is going to pay you back. And maybe you keep in a ta- the, the, you know, the, the invisible tally in your head, and you're keeping that tally, and you're going to call that favor in. Well, hey, I helped you move 10 years ago. You remember that? And they're like, what? <laughs> yeah, well, you got to help me, right? And so what we do is we have these only ifs. Only if. I'm going to do this only if they pay me back. Only, I'm going to serve this person only if they serve me. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna spend time with my children only if they make me proud and they obey me. I'm gonna love my spouse only if they love me back. I'm going to serve at church only if people notice. I'm going to take care of this person only if they're grateful for it. Because what we're worried about is we're worried about we're giving, we're giving, we're giving, we're giving, and no, no, I'm down to my last dollar. And so what we do is that's why we ask those questions. Who is my neighbor? Because I only want to love someone who I'm fairly confident will love me back so that I don't get too depleted myself. Or we ask the question, what's in it for me? And we might even clarify that ahead of time. Well, let's sort out the contract. If I help you move, let's let's figure this out. What are you going to do for me? And we get so worried. And that, by definition, is conditional love. Every single one of those only ifs, even if you're just looking for gratitude or recognition or a shout out on social media from that person for your act of goodwill towards them, that's a condition. Only if I get a good return on my investment. And like I said, that's capitalism. That's not love. Here's my main idea for today. True love, the kind of love that Christ has, is given, not sold. It's given. It's, that's what Jesus says. It's, it's if you were to give someone a loan and you weren't even certain they were gonna pay you back. It's given without an expectation. 
like I said, this kind of love is supernatural. It's, it's, it's not normal. It's abnormal in our world today. Even if you're not looking for you know, monetary repayment or you know, they, they, they help you later on, you're looking for that recognition. Even sometimes we're looking for that good feeling because it feels good to love people, doesn't it? And people talk about that. If you, in fact, if you listen to interviews of celebrities who give back, right, and they do these impressive things with all their money, and when in reality it's like less than 1% of what they make or whatever, but not, not to minimize that, but most of the time the answer that you get when, people, when a reporter says, well, why do you do that? Is they said, because it makes me feel good. That is still an act of self-love. Do you not see that? If we're doing it to feel good about ourselves, then we're still doing it as a, as a roundabout way of love turning in on itself. And it's an act of self-service, not true love, which is given, not sold. C.S. Lewis picks, on the, uh, picks up on the same language of Jesus in his book, The Four Loves. I'd highly encourage it. He goes through the, the four Greek words for love. And uh, in fact, his definition for agape love, the word he uses is charity. Charity. It's just kind of like you're just giving it away. And this is what he says. He says, there is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one. Not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. I love that quote from C.S. Lewis because he really shows us where these two destinations lead. You know, to love in the kind of love that Christ shows us is to lose out on our investment. I think about that Alfred Lord Tennyson quote, "'Tis better to have loved and lost," do you know it? "'Than to never have loved at all.'" And maybe you've heard that line before and you're like, is it? Because I've loved and lost, and it does not feel good. And I want you to hear this. If we are going to embody this Christ-like kind of love, we will love and we will lose. Your love will go wasted, squandered, just like the prodigal son and the father, right? He gives all of those resources to the son who leaves home, and they are spent in a moment, and if we're gonna love in this kind of love, we, it is vulnerable. And so we're left with this question, why? Why is it better to have loved and to have lost? And one of those reasons C.S. Lewis is picking up on is because this is actually, this agape love is actually how humans were originally created. This is part of our design. Every human being on planet Earth, is it the, the intention is for us to love this kind of way. This whole dog-eat-dog -dog world this whole, you know, king of the hill, make it to the top, that, that whole kind of thing, that's a result of sin. That's not the correct way that God designed us to live. And if we live that way, it might be safer. You won't have your heart broken. You won't be as vulnerable. You, won't be, you, you may not lose as much, but I think C.S. Lewis is exactly right. You will grow cold and bitter and lonely 
and you will become a person who at some point later down the road, if you continue on that trajectory, will seem like you're maybe even incapable of loving in the kind of way that God calls us to. But we still have to ask this question. If that's how you're living your life, I'm gonna help, I'm gonna serve, I'm gonna, lo- I'm gonna love, I'm gonna be generous, I'm gonna, I, you're gonna live that kind of life and you're down to your last dollar and someone says, hey, could you, could you help me in this way? It's kind of like that question of, won't you go bankrupt? bankrupt? How, do you, how do we manage that tension uh, of, the reality is it's difficult to love when you feel completely depleted, when you feel like you're running on empty, which so many people feel like today. And Jesus actually addresses that in verse 35 of Luke chapter six. He says, but love your enemies and do good. Notice he's talking about doing good and loving like they're the same thing, right? And do good and lend and expect nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons and daughters of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And he closes with this, be merciful even as your father is merciful. In the Matthew version, in the Sermon on the Mount, it's that line, be perfect as your father is perfect. And I think the kind of perfect thing we're called to do is to show mercy and to love in the same way as God. And there are three reasons, I think three compelling reasons why we should live our lives like this. And you don't have to be worried about that whole bankruptcy. Won't won't I run out of love? The first one, maybe not the most important one, but the first one, is Jesus promises us, not just here in Luke 6, but consistently in his teaching, you will be rewarded. Do you recognize that? I think about in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, your father sees even what you do in secret. Even if if you don't show up on someone else's Instagram story for doing it. Even if someone doesn't say thank you. Even if they don't pay you back. The reality is when we trust that God is the one who sees those things and God is the one who rewards us. Now, we have to be careful not to just do stuff, you know, to get a reward. You know, I'm all about those heavenly jewels or whatever I'm gonna get, right? We have to, because that, once again, is kind of starting to turn a little bit inward and selfish, but there should be, it's not our primary motivation, but there's an assurance that comes from that, isn't there? You, it allows you to stop looking for that person to repay you or to hit you back because you trust that God will. You trust that God will. And if God will make everything right in the new heavens and the new earth, then it's totally fine if you bought someone even a $6 Starbucks. And you're like, why do they want the jumbo size or whatever it's called? You know, it's like, that's fine. Because your heavenly father sees even what's done in secret. That's the first reason. The second reason is it says that God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil, so to, to the thankless person, right? And, and I've heard parenting described this way, right? Parenting, you pour out your whole life for years and years and years, and your kids might say thank you, but there, you know, it's just like this, you know, especially when they're babies, right? It's this thankless job. God pours his love on us, and how, how much do we say thank, thank you? God shows love to the ungrateful and to the evil. And he says, Jesus says, if you are to be a son or a daughter of God, like father, like son. We wanna imitate God. We wanna live this kind of same kind of sacrificial love as God. And so we're gonna be kind. We're gonna do good, even to those who don't say thank you. And then the third reason 
is that we have received mercy. He says, be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful. If you have received mercy, if you have received the gospel, if you have your sins forgiven, you've been made right with God, that empowers you to love others in the same way. But there's also, if you're gonna listen to the teachings of Jesus, there's an expectation to show that kind of love to other people. Jesus has some harsh words for people who are counting on God's forgiveness for them, but they don't show that same kind of forgiveness to other people in their lives. So what do we do? What do we do when you're running dry, when you feel like you're completely depleted? Instead of looking for repayment from the person that you are loving and you are serving, you go back to the source you go to your heavenly father who is rich in mercy. You go to your father who, is, who has a great love for you and you, you experience the love of God. C.S. Lewis once again says this. He says, in God there is no hunger that needs to be filled, only plenteousness, I love that word, plenteousness that desires to give. True love is given not sold. And this is why I believe the only place that we really see this, no ulterior motives, no, uh, no pretense, God in his self-sufficiency is able to love us with this generous plenteousness of his love, to lavish his grace upon us. And if we want to love well, we must be loved well. We must experience and receive that kind of love? Or as the Apostle John summarized it so eloquently, we love because he first loved us. We love as a response to God's love because he first loved us. And I just want to say to you today, if you've never responded to the good news of the gospel, Jesus loves you. He loves you so much. God loves you. That's what motivated Jesus, the son of God, to die on the cross for your sins, to suffer, to experience the wrath in your place and on your behalf and to rise from the grave so that you could have a shot, you could have a a chance at a new life in Christ. And today can be the day that you experience that love. In fact, I would argue that it, it's, a, it's a failing attempt if we're gonna try to love with agape love and we've never experienced it ourselves in the gospel. And the greatest way that God has loved us is through the gospel. And so today, I just wanna invite you, if you've never responded to that gospel message, that you can pray today and ask God to forgive your sin and to lead your life. At the very end of service, we'll have an opportunity with members of our prayer team down front. And I would invite you to, to come forward and to ask someone to pray with you as you make that step. And we always encourage people to take that step of baptism. Baptism is that official ceremony where a person declares their faith in Jesus. If you have questions about baptism or you wanna sign up, you can go to our website, hillcityboise.org baptism. But for you, even if you've encountered that love of God at one point in time, this is something that we have to be connected to like a branch is connected to the vine. This is, this is not something that, oh, I was loved by God at youth camp 15 years ago, and I made a decision of faith, and that was enough for me. That one moment of God's love is enough to sustain my life. This is a life-giving source. So here's the practice for you. This is something that we can do to open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit growing love in your life. Encounter God's loving presence on a consistent basis. Encounter God's loving 
presence. I want you to think through all the different religious activities that you do, going to church included, reading your Bible, prayer, any other spiritual practices that you do, the Lord's Supper. Those are not just religious activities. Those are opportunities to encounter God's loving presence. It's one of the reasons his Holy Spirit lives within you. The Holy Spirit guides you, the Holy Spirit convicts you, but the Holy Spirit is also God's tangible, loving presence in your life. And and maybe it's just a perspective shift. Maybe it's not adding a bunch more of spiritual practices or doing those things, but just to to view the things you're already doing as opportunities to spend time with God. But we're never going to encounter God's loving presence if we're rushing through life. And I I would make the case, I think it's almost impossible to love when you're busy. I mean, think about that. How, How easy is it to love your children if you don't have time for them? How easy is it to love your spouse if you're never around because you're so incredibly busy? Or maybe you're present, but you're not really present, right? You're physically there, but your mind is elsewhere. And I think for many of us, that's how our spiritual disciplines go, is maybe you're checking the box, but you're not really slowing down enough to encounter God's loving presence. And I would just challenge you to slow down, to connect with God, to experience his loving presence, and out of an overflow of that, to live a life of love. Our final practice today is to do small things with great love. To start small, to do small things with great love. This comes out of a quote from Mother Teresa whose life exemplified this same uh, idea of agape love. She says this, not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. And so much of the time what we do is we kind of undervalue small acts of kindness. We kind of undervalue, maybe you'll have that idea, oh, maybe I should do this. Maybe I should send an encouraging text message. Maybe I should buy someone a coffee. Maybe I should check up on this person. Maybe I should shovel their driveway. Fill in the blank, right? We have those initial thoughts, and then we're like, ah, it probably wouldn't make that big of a difference. It's too small, too small. But the reality is, small things to you might be massive to that person. They might have massive implications to that person. That per- you don't know where that person is on the inside and how, hurt, how hurting that person is. And in fact, it might even be the Holy Spirit of God leading you to that small act of kindness. Jesus said something about even a cup of water. Even if the water is free, giving even a cup of water is noticed by God, those small acts. I think about in John chapter 13 where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. That could easily have been one of those moments where you know they're in the upper room and they've planned the Passover meal and they're looking around, they're like, oh, we forgot to get the foot washing guy. We didn't hire a servant to wash the feet. Oh, well, next time. It could have easily been something they just skipped. It was just an act of hospitality. It wasn't like a huge deal But Jesus used that as an opportunity to show that there is no act of love that is too small. And in fact, he commands his disciples, go and do the same. And when he's doing that, he's not saying, literally, you have to wash everyone's feet. He's saying, do small acts with great love. Live a life where you start small 
because you never know how big that act might mean to someone else. And the other thing about doing small acts with great love is that small things lead to big things. If you wanna be the kind of person who opens an orphanage or adopts children into your family or, or does these massive things where you're, it's really self-sacrificial and giving in your life, it has to start small. I think about the story of the Good Samaritan. We already referenced it earlier. That's the story Jesus told in Luke chapter 10. In response to that question, who is my neighbor? Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. So the story of the Good Samaritan is Jesus's way of teaching us what love your neighbor as yourself looks like. And think about that. There's a Samaritan man who sees a naked, half-dead, bloodied body on the side of the road, and he picks him up, he dresses his wounds, he carries him on his donkey to a hotel, pays for room and board, unlimited amount. Open a tab, I'll pay whatever else when I come back. I look at that, I'm like, I've never done that. That's pretty intense, actually. Have you, if you saw a half-dead, naked person on the side of the road, would you put them in the back of your car? Like, be, be honest about that. That is a massive act of love. And yet, it's the two religious people in the story, it's the priest and the Levite, who don't. And there's, there's all sorts of, you know, we can infer all sorts of reasons why they don't. They're too busy. They don't want to touch, you know, what they think is a dead body because it'll make them unclean. I think one of the reasons that they didn't have the love to do that for the man who was in need is because they didn't do the small things of love. You don't get to that good Samaritan, you know, pay for someone's room and board, these extravagant, lavish acts of love if you've never bought someone lunch, if you've never served on a consistent basis. And so for us, we have to love in this supernatural kind of love. And one of the other compelling reasons that we love this way is not necessarily to, to you know, I, I'll love this person so that they'll become a Christian, right? But the reality is, this is the way the world changes. When billions of followers of Jesus around the world love in this way, it changes the world. It changes the world. People will see their good deeds and they will glorify our Father in heaven. I wanna close just with a reading from Ephesians 3, verse 17 through 19. And this is a prayer from Paul to the church. It says this, he prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.